0: Welcome to the Swampflix podcast. My name is Brandon. The day I'm Brittany Longboss. I am James Cohn.
1: And I'm Hanna Rassinen.
0: And this is the podcast version of the movie review website Swampflix. We've been watching movies together lately. <gasps>
1: we have.
0: Maybe I should talk about them up top. I'm, I'm gonna see if they come up naturally. I think I think that's what we settled on.
1: <laughs> Brandon, you want to bring these movies? I
2: up. I do.
0: Like last time, I <laughs> felt like I kind of overpowered the normal format. I need to like open up to a more democratic <laughs> process.
2: Well, it's 2023. Like That's right. uh, shake it up. Yeah.
0: Become a full right. like, of an autocrat. Right. Steer That's the right. conversation yes. the way I want it to go. Yes. Okay. Someone please take this podcast away from me. What have y'all been watching? <laughs> <laughs> with or without me in the room?
2: I've watched without you in the room.
0: <laughs> Great start. Yeah. We You're still,
2: still all steering all the like, conversation. Like We're only gonna are, talk about so. movies that we haven't seen with Brandon. <laughs> I saw one in theaters that I loved, and I saw a made-for-TV movie that I also loved that's super old. So theater movie, I watched Infinity Pool. It was amazing. I went with my brother, and we were like the only people in the theater, and it was like a Saturday afternoon. And I felt like I was just screaming the whole time, like, whoa! Um, Lots of fluids. Mm. Pretty disgusting. Beautiful Alexander Skarsgård in the weirdest fucking thing i've ever seen him do and he does it so well and i love the i i don't know the idea of like being in a place that like i'm scared of resorts i've never been to a resort We'll never go to a resort just because it's weird. It's weird where they're placed at a lot of times where it's like, we're going to plop you here in the middle of this really poor country and you're going to live high on the hog and you can't really leave and do anything. And we, we warn you not to. So it kind of played on that a little bit, which I enjoyed. Have you ever been on a cruise? I went on a Disney cruise when I was younger and we stopped for like three hours in like the Bahamas. Yeah. And, I was like probably 10 and I just remember being like, holy shit, this is weird. Cause like there were like little kids coming up to us that were like, please like buy these wooden flutes from us. And then we would go to, and it's like, oh, let's go toward the Atlantis hotel. And I'm like, holy shit. Like this is, it just blew my mind.
3: Yeah. Same. Yeah. On a Jamaican cruise. Like, oh, you're in Jamaica for six hours and then get back on that boat and go back home.
0: That said, maybe people should not set things on luxury cruises for the ultra wealthy
3: for a little bit.
1: Right. <laughs> maybe take a
3: little break. Yeah, yeah. I think
1: we need to cool it.
3: <laughs> it's Yeah. With White Lotus and Triangle of Sadness and this and one this is- And this thing. Yeah. This was definitely the strangest, <laughs> the strangest of resort. all of them.
2: So y'all watched it. Yes. Yeah. We saw
3: this it in the theater. This is
1: one of the movies that Brandon, Brandon wanted was to- I was, kind of yeah. I was there. I there. <laughs> oh, wonderful.
0: <laughs> maybe they should pump the brakes and sing the word James for a while too. James!
1: James, your little baby.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was having kind of like an
3: existential crisis in that movie.
0: I feel like Mia Goth finds new, more annoying ways to
3: say your name than I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Yeah. In the back half of that movie. She's a star, James. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was wild watching that in a theater.
2: What a fucking weird concept, though. Like, I don't want to give like the big thing away. Like sci-fi conceit. Yeah. But what? (laughs) Oh my God.
0: I like how matter of fact it is. And like, almost like it wouldn't even matter that that happens in a way. Cause like the real terror is Mia Goth and like these other (laughs) rich hedonists sort of like stealing his vacation away from him and like making him do things that he's kind of into, but like is ashamed about the pleasure he's taking in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's unlocking something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When
3: he's a total degenerate, like, frothing and drooling yeah. all over the place. It's um, pretty fun inhaling to Inhaling
2: that stuff out of the bowl.
1: Yeah. The sci-fi kind of like twist is just a device for doing whatever you want on vacation like kind of like infinite pleasure, infinite like boundless hedonism on an island that is kind of like reserved for that behavior and where that behavior is Allowed for economic reasons.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess you get that exact thing out of White Lotus and yeah. Triangle of Sadness already, but like this one has the goopy, right. sexy, like yeah, this one nasty has nasty, squirty tits. Yeah, which is what I like. Like if losing this movie had come out yeah, first, losing. I would have been um, <laughs> probably more into it. Yeah, yeah. And also like if it had come out before Possessor too, because I think he wrote this in like the long years, like between anti-viral and possessor oh really and it's a movie about like writer's block and not being able to like yeah go out on his own outside his like family success and i'm sure if your last name is cronenberg and you can't get a (laughs) movie made like i'm sure
3: you start like loathing yourself who am i yeah it definitely felt more like experimental and not maybe as tight as possessor but Mm -hmm. it was like way funnier than anything else Mm -hmm. he's ever done oh yeah mia
0: goth is fucking hilarious in this movie Yeah. yeah When she starts negotiating with the people of the bus,
1: <laughs>
2: people making of demands, the bus.
0: Uh, I was trying really hard not to be the most obnoxious person in the theater. Like I was like <laughs> crying, trying to hold my laughter in. I
2: didn't realize that her eyebrows, Like I thought she didn't have eyebrows, and then like there was one scene where she tilted her head, and I could see like the hairs a little bit. Yeah. So she has eyebrows. They're just really light. Really light. Very light. <laughs> it's also crazy that
0: that's her real accent. And that she just doesn't use it that often. That like sort of baby doll London accent is like how she talks in normal conversation. It's so
2: iconic. I'm an actress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I want like um a stuffed animal to squeeze yeah. and just like that's the I'm voice I'm
1: very that... popular where I'm from.
2: <laughs> You're so good. <laughs> that <was very>
1: good. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. So,
2: uh, but other than other than that, I the Elizabeth Taylor, it's called Liz, the Elizabeth Taylor story. Oh. It's a 1995 made for TV movie where Sherilyn Finn is Elizabeth Taylor. Ooh. And she looks just like That's her. That's good casting. It's so ridiculous. It's about like all her like 80 husbands. Didn't Lindsay Lohan play Liz Taylor too? Did I make that up? Uh, she, no, she did.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm having a vague ghostly image of Lindsay Lohan. As in Elizabeth pearls too. or something. Yeah, and she's
2: And she's doing the I'm picturing
0: her throwing cocktails, which I might have just seen clips of it on the soup and not actually watched the movie. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, now I have to see that. But this one was very campy. Every other scene, there was like a new guy in there, and I'm like, wait, she got remarried already. Like it would just mm-hmm. happen so fast, <laughs> and like super funny. There's a great scene where she's at the Benny Ford clinic in heels, like sweeping, <laughs> and then she makes comments, like they're they're all sitting around in this circle and they're all talking about like their addictions, and somebody's like a sex addict, and she's like says something along the lines of, How can anyone be addicted to love? Like, what's wrong with being addicted to love? <laughs> and um, there's also a great moment where she's in a fat suit because she gained weight at some point in her life. But they went through that part of her life in like two minutes. So it's just her in a fat suit looking in the mirror going, oh, oh um, no. it's great. <laughs> it's on Tubi. Of course it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I-, I assume most of Cheryl Fenn's filmography is on Tubi. Oh, God. Course, Except
2: for... um. The one where she's in the box. Boxing Elena?
0: Oh, mm. yeah. That's not on there. It should be in the Criterion Collection. That's oh, right. there you go. <laughs> a priceless
2: Tubi work. Tubi is, is also like my Criterion Collection. <laughs> <laughs> I'll
1: throw in the Criterion Channel. Hello, Tubi.
2: Hello, Tubi. So those are like the two like big life-changing movies I've watched <laughs> lately. So, well, how about you, James? What have you been watching? Jamesy. Jamesy,
3: <laughs> James-y tell us what you've God, been watching. Hannah, oh <laughs> you're so good. <laughs> yeah, and she's been doing it <laughs> a lot lately. I've been doing it. <laughs> Quite disturbing. You don't look <laughs>
0: unlike Mia Goth <Goff> either. <laughs> oh,
2: <laughs> There's yes. a
0: resemblance. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We oh got to
2: shave those this eyebrows.
1: This the, the fourth Cronenberg film.
3: <laughs> oh I become God. Mia Goth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> so I don't know how to segue from that to the <laughs> film I saw recently called The Big Chill, which I'm sure I, don't, I guess we're all familiar with.
0: I've heard the soundtrack like a hundred times. I've never seen the movie. Mm. Never seen
3: the movie. Right? That's how I felt. I was like, I got to see The Big Chill, right? Like, my parents love The Big Chill. Everyone over 50 loves The Big Chill. That's <laughs>
2: very accurate.
1: I had never heard of The Big Chill until. <laughs> oh, the really? Episode.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like got. Every freaking star yeah. from that time, it's like Jeff Goldblum, Kevin Klein, uh, William Hurt, William Hurt, Tom Beringer, Glenn Close, Meg Tilly, Mary Kay Plate. Like it just goes on. It's an all star cast, and it's these baby boomers, these like ex hippies who kind of reconnect over the one of their friends commit suicide and they go. To his funeral and decide to spend a weekend together and they're just like getting high and drunk listening to old records having sex talking about life talking about like their ideals and how their you know priorities have shifted over time it's just like a lot of conversations a lot of hanging out a lot of cool music like Brandon said like the soundtrack is pretty great. It's I like mean,
0: Motown kind of stuff? Or?
3: A lot of Motown, a lot of Creedence, Clearwater Revival. It like, And I think it gets a lot of flack because it's like a bunch of white ex-hippies listening to Motown. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I guess I get that. But like, I really enjoyed this movie. I thought the interplay between all the characters was really fun. And they all felt like real lived in people and... I don't know. I thought it had something interesting to say. And it was just a good, like, hangout movie. So I get it was cool to understand why the boomers love it so much. Mm -hmm. Like, I kind of wanted to, like, hate it a little bit. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, boomers. Like, meh. But it's, like, really good. And I really enjoyed it. And it was directed by the same guy that did Body Heat.
1: Really? Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Very different application of William Hurt.
3: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Different application of William Hurt. But. William Hurt is great, too. Yeah. Like He's he's really good in this. It's just like the kind of really angsty, oh, my life isn't yeah. really worked out the way I want it Super to. Super cynical. Cynical. Very
1: hurt. And mm. Very hurt. Hurt.
3: Yeah, I don't know. It was a really, really fun hangout movie. I love watching these movies that meant a lot to a generation that we are not a part of, and to kind of try to understand why it, had such a cultural impact and like with the big chill I got it Mm -hmm. I think it's a cool movie I enjoyed it so
1: yeah (laughs) it's totally like I I felt like I was watching the film with my mom like it's (laughs) totally my mom movie and I could see you know like James said I could see where it would get under people's skin or it would be kind of like too sentimental uh, specifically for this like one culture but mm-hmm. yeah it was very comforting to me so i enjoyed it
2: yeah I'll, i always put the big chill in the same bucket with like terms of endearment and like saint elmo's fire just these like movies that would play on tbs it sounds- yeah, Saturday 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 afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah just really calming like you don't have to mm-hmm a lot of effort and that's how I feel like
3: about Steel Magnolias too like if it's on TV like Mm -hmm. I'm gonna watch it do
2: y'all remember on TBS they had like dinner and a movie where they would play a movie and they would cook I feel like they did the big chill that makes sense and maybe made chili when I close my eyes
0: and picture the movie I picture a bunch of hippies cooking in a kitchen
1: yes. while Motown plays. Yes, that's exactly okay. what happens. Yes. That's yeah,
0: That's all I remember about it. They're yeah.
3: making food, they're drinking wine. Drink they, once do I'm they sing wine. into the
0: utensils as microphones?
2: Oh, you better oh. believe it. <laughs> yeah, I think I so. I actually <laughs> don't know that that happens. I don't think that I, happens, but does. that's the general yeah. vibe. And all in like going. casual like sweaters. and stuff. Yeah, totally. And hey, like casual. someone like smokes
3: a little too much pot oh, and they no. get a little weird. smoked a little too much. Jeff Goldblum
1: takes like a Quaalude or something, and he's
0: just passes like, out before out. the party. Yeah, I re-watched nine to five recently, and oh, like so that's like a third of the plot is they smoked too much weed one they just night. Get really
3: <laughs> Amazing, yeah. I dig it. Yeah, I dig it. Um, relatable problem, really. Of course, Hannah, what have you been watching?
1: I've been watching a lot of stuff, James. Thanks for asking. And uh, <laughs> so I the movie I wanted to bring up is connected to another movie I watched. Um, so I, I'll kind of mention one and talk about the other more in depth so I've been trying to see EO for like as long as I've been alive but I actually never knew who directed it I just knew it was a donkey <laughs> movie and that's as far as I got I was like I'm gonna see this movie so I decided to go and see it and James put a movie on by Jersey Skolomowski called Deep End and you really James you really like The Shout too I so love you're the shout. checking out his films so we started watching Deep End, and it was like a half an hour before I had to leave, but I was like, oh, this is great. Please don't watch the rest of it, and let me let me go to the movie and come back. So I went to the movie, and EO starts, and whose name splashes upon the screen? <laughs> it's Jersey Skolomowski, and I was Whoa. so excited. <laughs> this dude is great. I, I uh, like his films. Anyway, the movie I wanted to talk about was Deep End. It was directed in 1970. It stars Jane Astor and John Mulder Brown. So John Mulder Brown plays this young boy. He's about 15, named Mike. He gets a job in the public bath in England. And um, Jane Asher is his older co-worker, Susan. She's like early 20s.
0: Incredibly beautiful. Yeah,
1: she's like gorgeous red hair. Dated
0: a beetle in the 60s. Yeah. Beautiful.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, and she's like... Very sexually open. She has a fiance. She has an affair going on with a man that who's like totally creepy, who works at the public house. He gives like swimming lessons. And I think he's like a gym teacher, it seems like, or a coach. And it kind of follows John as he's working in the bathhouse. And it's his sexual awakening, but it's really rotten. Uh, And there are these women that come to the bathhouse and there's it seems like there's this it's understood that men and women, even if they don't have sex with the workers there, they like kind of project their sexual fantasies onto um, the workers there. So this guy is like this kid's 15 and there's this older woman like very aggressively coming on to him while she's like yelling about football. And the movie really looks at different kinds of transactional sexual relationships and it really seems to, like, disturb his idea of sex as he's kind of going through the summer and it culminates in this, like, really horrible, grotesque tragedy. So I loved this movie The bathhouse is so, like, disgusting and grimy. It has this really, like, kind of dim green, saturated Mm. effect. Um, And I just thought, uh, I mean, it was a beautiful film, and I I thought it was a really interesting, like, exploration of young sexuality and, like, these kind of, like, negative forces that shape our understanding of ourselves and the opposite sex.
3: I thought it really captured what it meant to be like a 15-year-old boy who's like so horny and is willing to do anything to like...
0: Make something happen? Yeah, make
3: something (laughs) happen. And this whole movie, this kid is like getting into trouble, creating all this mischief just because he's just so horny and he doesn't know what to do with it. He just has like a raging boner at everything and he can't control it. And it leads to like very tragic consequences at the end
1: and there's a real lack of boundaries between everybody and I feel like that was kind of maybe par for the course during that time and you can see how it affects how people relate to each other
0: I've been wanting to see this one for a long time and uh, I think Criterion just added what like three or four of his movies Mm -hmm. that's awesome
3: and every like I've only seen this and The Shout yeah, and they're both like I really want us all to see The Shout but Mm -hmm. this one's very good too. like, and I haven't seen EO, but I want to now that I know that he directed it.
1: It's real, EO is very different. That was from- one of my favorites from last year. Yeah,
3: what's crazy about it is like it plays like someone
0: who's just got out of film school and is like yeah. trying to impress you visually and like thematically. He's like really mm-hmm. like taking some big swings in EO that like someone in their 80s who's been making movies since the 60s, like you would think that, yeah, he wouldn't have anything to prove anymore, right? He's gotta take it easy,
1: and it was like. I didn't see all of the shout. I think I came in like halfway through. But EO is really swinging for the fences in a way that those two films aren't. Especially Deep End is really about this kind of like suffocating, like hot, horny, gross atmosphere. Um, and it does a really great job of building that. And there are some there's some really interesting, like beautiful scenes in the movie. But EO is just like a feast visually um so yeah i go see jersey skull movies please and brandon uh what have you been watching
0: i watched a movie with all 'all. (laughs) y'all we're all in the same room together
1: Uh (laughs) (laughs) we all watched it
0: uh hana brought over a dvd of paul verhoeven's the fourth man from 1983 which was i think his like last dutch movie before he came to hollywood Mm -hmm. i like paul verhoeven a lot probably one of the first like subversive filmmakers I ever like clued into like oh he's actually saying something about violence and sex in this movie that like I didn't get the first three times I watched it right you know like it kind of clued me into like subtext as a mm-hmm. concept uh especially like starship troopers and robocop and then when recently w- we watched basic instinct um it was the first time I had ever seen it and fucking loved it
1: yeah uh,
0: and uh the fourth man is kind of like a dry run for basic instinct totally um, except since he made it in Europe instead of America, it doesn't have that Hollywood sheen to it. It feels almost like a supernatural Jallo film at some points. There's a lot of like Fulci's like ocular gore shots, like close up oh. of an eyeball getting pierced or like nature footage of spider webs. Uh, there's also like intense reds of like the femme fatale character. wears these like bright red outfits where everything else in the room is like more muted colors. So it, it feels like both, a clear signal of what he would make later, but also very much of the European art Mm -hmm. movies that would have been made around him. I think there might be more value to him sneaking stuff past Hollywood studios that makes the American movies a little more um, politically interesting. Maybe Mm -hmm. this is like just him being like blasphemous with the sex and violence without really commenting on, like the audience's participation in that it's he's just like indulging in it in a really fun way (laughs) what is interesting about it versus basic instinct is like the main character is the same as michael douglas where like he's really horny for this femme fatale that's obviously going to like allow him to lead himself to doom uh you know it's going to like kill him eventually if he just stays horny for this lady Mm -hmm. but he is the bisexual character not her Mm -hmm. which is interesting And one of the reasons he sticks around her is because she has access to trade that he finds very hot in photographs and, like, had some failed cruising attempts with before he even met her. And he starts having these, like, Jallo-style bad omen visions of his death and, like, dreamlike visions of the future that keep, like, introducing this witchcraft element to the movie that never is spoken aloud. And kind of, like, in basic instinct with the ice pick, like, it's kind of like, well, is she a witch or isn't she? Like, the whole (laughs) movie... And you don't get a solid answer for that the same way as in Basic Instinct. I don't know. I thought this movie was great.
1: Yeah, it was a really fun... Like, even the setting, just this... It was like a super fun salon. And then her house is, like, exquisitely decorated with, like, sea foam and pink. Lots of
2: gold cranes. Yeah.
1: It was really refreshing to see a fully openly bisexual main character. And even, like... She is trapping him with the promise of, like, sex with this man. Mm -hmm.
0: That's something that he could not have gotten away with in America during the AIDS epidemic. Like, it was just, that's just impossible. Yeah. I think if there is anything, like, actually, like, politically subversive in the movie, because I feel like a lot of what he does here is just, like, you could get away with that in, like, European art cinema pretty well but um, there's a scene where she's on top riding him and they're having sex and he like covers her breast yeah. and says you're like a boy and like there's something about when he does that it starts to look like she's thrusting into him mm-hmm. um, even though her motion doesn't change it just kind of flips the power dynamic mm-hmm. visually Cool. Um, and I was just like whoa that's like a really like provocative idea to like slip into like a pretty standard erotic thriller mm-hmm. um, and I, th- I think a lot of the ideas that are provocative come out of
3: just having a male bisexual
0: lead like that
3: yeah also, it was interesting, like, after having seen Benedetta mm-hmm. recently, like, him kind of starting his career, like, thinking about religion a lot. And it doesn't really come up in a lot of his other career, but he's obviously come back to it in Benedetta. So, to see kind of that religious symbolism and imagery yeah. early on in his career was, like, pretty interesting for me.
2: That crucifix scene was so shocking. Yeah, um, that's so amazing.
3: Yeah, he like envisions the young
0: stud, um, in his red speedo on the crucifix, yeah. and like starts to slowly <laughs> peel the st- speedo <laughs> yes. off. But okay, even Benedetta, I think, is like, it's a really good movie, and I liked it a lot. But I don't think I loved it as much as I would have if he made it with like an American studio, and it felt like he was like getting away with something subversive. Like, it feels like he made this like small French film he's delighting himself with this blasphemous in- imagery, but the people that it would politically
3: provoke will never step in that theater to watch it. Right. I think also maybe sometimes like great art comes out of like the constraints you have on you. So yeah. if you're dealing with mm-hmm. the Hollywood yeah. system and you still find a way to make something yeah. subversive without anyone noticing. That's pretty impressive. But yeah, like art house, European, producers are like dude do whatever you want <laughs> yeah like, <laughs> it's, like permissive or
0: even encouraged you know Encour- yeah but it, it looks great i think he used the same cinematographer he used in his hollywood stuff um, and even though the money is not as slick there's still like crane shots and dollies mm-hmm. and things that like it's a little shaky you could tell they're doing some sort of like makeshift work around to like cut the budget but it looks like a real mainstream thriller it just also is like this art house european version of it um, before we started making the real stuff with like basic instinct and total recall and all that also it is kind of like all erotic thrillers a little bit of a neo-noir and that was a good lead-in to our topic of conversation for today because uh james picked a noir topic
3: i just love noir yeah i just want to talk about (laughs) noir all the time did this come up for any specific reason or you just like sort of slipped into it I, for the past, I don't know, maybe.
1: I feel like a year or
3: like. It's been a while. Yeah. This obsession with noir, (laughs) it's been going on for a while. And I've just like, I love this genre so much. Anytime I'm on like Criterion and there's a noir that's like under an hour and a half, I don't care what, I want to see it. I just love this style. And particularly this time period we're going to talk about in the like the 40s. This is my shit, and I want to take y'all along on the journey. The dark alley of Noir. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yes. And all that's coming up to you right, right now.
1: Why should I believe you? You got all the earmarks of a cheap crook. Now, wait a shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. For two cents, I'd change my mind and turn you in. I don't like you. All right, all right. Don't get sore. I'm not
0: getting sore. But just remember who's boss around here. If you shut up and don't give me any arguments, you'll have nothing to worry about. But if you act wise, well, Mr. You pop
2: into jail so fast,
3: it'll give you the bins. I'm not arguing. See that you don't. So like I was just saying, I've been pretty obsessed with film noir for better part of a year now. And I think of all the noirs I've watched, Detour from 1945 is probably my favorite. I think it hits like a particular sweet spot in how like, Nasty and nihilistic and sweaty and just grimy, it is. So it was directed by Edgar Almer. I guess it was part of the like poverty row, like really like low budget. I think this movie was made. I think I read for like twenty five grand, which is like absolutely nothing. It's kind of like a timeless noir in that you have this main character Al played by Tom Neal, who I actually I've seen in a couple other films as well. I think he was like a pretty popular actor in these kind of films in the 40s. And then in a weird twist of fate that kind of parallels the film, he was convicted of murdering his ex-wife. Whoa, in the 50s.. Whoa. And he claimed that it was in self-defense, um, but they found her shot in the back of her head on the couch. He was convicted of murder, went to jail for like six years and got out and died less than a year later of a heart attack in his apartment alone.
2: That's such a like noir life. Yeah,
3: And it parallels Detour. Uh, In this film, he plays Al, who is this kind of struggling piano player in New York. He's got this girlfriend, Sue, who decides like, this ain't the life for me. I'm going to try to make it in Hollywood. Like. And so she leaves him behind and he decides, you know what? Like I want to be with her. Like we're going to make it together. We're going to get married. And so he decides he's going to hitchhike across the United States to be with her. And along the way he meets this guy Haskell, who is like a bookie, you know, bets on horse races, but he obviously has some money and he's like, Oh, I'm going to LA. I'll give you a ride. And along the way, Al takes over driving and Haskell's. He falls asleep and it starts raining. He's like, man, I gotta put the top up or whatever. And he goes to open the passenger door and Haskell falls out and hits his head on a rock and dies. Or does he? Yeah, know, all this
0: is being narrated to us from this like roadside diner and the narrator's like super unreliable.
3: Well, and so I wanted to get to that because I think that's like watching it a second time. That was the more interesting aspect but the way he tells the story yeah is like (laughs) haska falls out he hits his head and he's like well shit like the cops are gonna think that i murdered this (laughs) guy and took his money so i'm gonna take his money and take his clothes and take his car (laughs) and (laughs) drive to hollywood
1: the way that he's talking to the camera in this movie is so funny he's like now i know what you're thinking of course he did he could have killed, but what was there to do but hide the body and take the car? And I was going to leave the money, but then I thought, I'm going to need money for gas. You know, he's like constantly <laughs> rationalizing. And then at one point, he's even like, like he finds some letter that the guy was sending to his father. And he said, Ah, he was fleecing his old man. And maybe it's a good thing I'm not, you know, he died. And now he's not going to, you know, it's just like the rationalization is so funny. Like you can read it both ways, but thinking that this guy totally did the things he's saying he didn't do is
0: hilarious to he me He also like negs us he's like you bunch of like cynics <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
3: thinking the worst of me right Yeah. so the fir- the first half of this film and it is a short film too which i love it's i think it's 68 minutes it's in and out it's a quick story i was reading the original script it was like going to be close to two hours and the director just like, nah, cut that out. Like, <laughs> and I think it's much better for it because uh, the first half is kind of this existential, oh, woe is me, you know, times are tough and my girl left me and I got to go hitchhike across, you know, and I've got bad luck, and but we're going to make it. And after this, you know, event happens, he takes the car, he's driving to Hollywood, and he decides to pick up another hitchhiker, uh, Vera. Who is played by this actress Ann Savage, which is great because she is a savage. Yeah. <laughs> she's a total bitch. Love her. <laughs> yeah, love her. She's so kind. I know we all love her. Got <laughs> the buggiest eyes. And, so and suspicious. i, hate you. And, I don't <laughs>
1: like, yeah. And Haskin, when
3: he's in the car with Haskin, like he's showing him these like marks, these claw marks on his arms, like, oh, must have been a dame. You know, it's like, And then we come to find out, like, he picks up the woman that Haskin or Haskell had already dealt with earlier. And so she knows that he's full of shit. So at first she kind of plays nice. She takes a nap, but she just kind of comes out of her (laughs) sleep and like, what'd you do with the body?
1: (laughs) Yeah, not Haskell.
3: What'd you do? Kiss him with a wrench? (laughs) (laughs) And so like immediately and the look on his face is like, oh shit. Like my luck just got even worse. Like she knows. And so the second half of the movie is she's like the puppet, Matt. She essentially is telling him what to do. Like, hey, we got to go sell this car oh, wait, I found out he actually has this like inheritance and his dad is loaded. Like, no, you have to pretend to be Haskell. And she's just like stringing him along. And he is desperately like, man, I just want to go. I want to go be with Sue. And she's like, no, we're going to go do this scheme and that. And ultimately it ends in murder because all noirs have to end in murder. The circumstances of which the way he tells it she kind of committed suicide the way I viewed it a second time. You definitely killed her. You strangled her. And he's kind of left at the end of the movie back where he started hitchhiking in kind of this no man's land.
0: Like, it just seems like he'll never actually get there. It's like, it's like purgatory or something. Right. And at
3: the, the very end of the film, you know, he gets picked up by police or maybe he doesn't, you know, maybe it's just the threat of being picked up by police, but, you know the film ends with this line about about fate.
0: Fate's always around the corner, waiting to stick a foot out to trip you.
3: Yeah, that's an earlier. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. But same the same idea. He's all about like he was just dealt a bad hand, and fate had it out for him, and you know just bad luck. So anyway, the first time I watched the movie, I thought that's what it was about. It was about it's true you just have a run of bad luck and your life is that's shit. That's what
2: I thought until everyone started talking about <laughs> it. But <laughs> well, well,
3: well, watching no. it a second time. Oh, no. Oh, so. I do have
1: the line. It's fate <laughs> can put the finger on you or me for no good reason at for all. For no good reason, right. Oh.
3: And so that's what I thought. I was like, man, that's so like nihilistic but true. Like Life just sucks. Sometimes you're dealt a bad hand. Watching it again, he is an unreliable narrator. Yeah. This whole time. And like one thing I love about Noirs is I love the voiceover. I love the main character kind of telling you what's going on.
0: It's always like so overwritten. Like he, d- he doesn't say waitress. He says like hash slinger or he yeah. doesn't say hitchhike. He says I'm thumbing rides. Like yeah. everything's like a little too poetic and overwritten. <laughs> and I
3: love that. That's it, great. And I also, I've always loved, and I think why I kind of gravitated towards Noirs too, is I love kind of stagey, almost like, Play like Mm -hmm. dialogue, and that's what a lot of noir voiceovers feel like. But this one in particular plays it as like the unreliable narrator. And so, watching the second time, I was like, Wait, it's not about that, like, you were dealt a bad hand, it's that you made really bad decisions and you're trying to blame it on fate. When really, it's like you suck at making decisions and you got yourself into this mess, and it's easier to say the universe's fault and it also leaves open the question like did he just murder this guy did sue really even want him to come Mm -hmm. to california because when they're talking on the phone you never see her you see her face once but you never see her dialogue
0: and even when she's leaving, she's like, I'm going to go make a life for myself. He's like, but
2: what about me? <laughs> I thought you said you loved me. He's such a pathetic yeah. little
0: shit. Every yeah. time
2: <laughs> his like face showed up in my mind, I would just be like. <laughs> yeah. like little. <laughs> so so his like, little eyebrows are just pushed down. In a little so brown. the more I'm thinking about it, what if he was this serial killer <laughs> and He was so crazy that he was talking himself like out of it.
3: Yeah. I think on one extreme, there's that interpretation. (laughs) And I think in the middle, it's like he's just unreliable and he's painting Mm -hmm. the like best version of events that makes him look good. But I think ultimately, that's what the film's really getting at. It's like, yeah, the universe is cruel, but also like if you make really bad decisions, it's going (laughs) to seem even worse. Yeah.
1: Yeah there are these like strings of like dreams and aspirations too because he's in new york with his girlfriend they're playing at these like two-bit clubs he's a piano player and she's a singer and she's like well i'm gonna go to hollywood and try to make it there and he's like that's the stupidest thing i ever heard of and then she leaves and after a while he's like it's like he decides to go there and join her and like, oh, yeah, we're going to make it big and like, just you wait, you you keep going to auditions, lady and all, you know. So the idea of fate, like, you know, it's a million and one shot that you get a chance to succeed and like fate just didn't have it in the cards for me. That's true. But also it's like I feel like he did just start killing people because he didn't have enough money to get to los angeles so there are these like dreams and aspirations and the means that he takes to get there he he kind of wants to forget about it like he wants to paint it as this like woe-begotten journey where he was this totally innocent person pursuing his highest self
3: right and i think that's a lot of the changes that were made to the script is the focus more on his like internal existential crisis and his like psychology and less like plot. And I think that's why this one in particular really stands out to me. It like, I mean, I, I know I, I love David Lynch and I'm sure David Lynch loves this movie. This feels like a Lynchian sort of nightmare of dreams and hazy circumstances and yeah. what is truth and, and, I, I don't know like yeah. it casts like a spell on you and then you have Vera coming like a wrecking ball and just like her dialogue is that snappy very like witty cutting noir stuff She's that not I love. She's as witty
0: as him. She talks as fast as him right. but her language is not as like no, colorful. No it's just direct. Yeah. Yeah. Right this is
2: the fastest movie I've watched in a long time. <laughs> like everyone talks real fast. Everything happens super fast. And it's super short. So that's if like so much shit is crammed into that, like what, 67 minutes? I love it. It's yeah, it's wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: But yeah, he
0: came in as like the German expressionist, like expats came in. He made one big studio movie, The Black Cat, mm-hmm. uh, oh. which is like one of the great really good, universal yeah. horror films. Mm-hmm. Um, And then he had an affair with a studio exec's wife. Yeah, and he was basically blackballed. Oh, yeah. oh, no. Uh, so he worked on Poverty Row for the rest of his career. And the black cat has those giant sets with all the huge shadows on the walls and stuff like that. And he can't do that here, but you're right that there is like a dreamlike feeling to it anyway. Like the fog machines are
3: over pumping. Oh my God. There's a great scene where him and Sue are walking, talking about the future of the relationship. And like the fog is up to a hundred. Like they (laughs) can't see there's no other people on the streets And the way the film is shot is just them talking in the fog and then occasionally showing the intersections of, like, street signs. Yeah. Just that, like, back and forth creates this, like, they're essentially walking through a dream Mm -hmm. vibe. And, like, he does that throughout the whole film especially the first half there's another part where he has an actual
0: dream of her performing
1: yeah i was just gonna bring yeah. that, up. that
0: song yeah and yeah that's shot very oddly as well yeah
1: it's like she kind of shot from below and you can see her she's in the light but then her band members are like you can only see their shadows so yeah. it's and they're these long black shadows so it's like this ghostly kind of band together and i feel like that is he has that dream of her after she leaves and he's deciding to go so it's like he's even more disconnected like he's getting more and more disconnected from her and there
3: was something i found really strange watching it again like when he's playing piano and i think it was just done for budget reasons but the music is not matching his fingers, but it zooms in on his hands, and it's obviously someone that can actually play the piano. And then when it zooms out, it just doesn't match. And right. like that, with all this like dreamy, weird stuff in the beginning, it it's sort of intoxicating and just strange and surreal. And then I I don't know, it just like casts a spell over you in a way that some other noirs have not been able to.
0: And I think you're right that that's what's interesting about film noir is like it's cheap genre filmmaking and it's people doing these like high style images on like no money. Mm-hmm. Lots of shadows. Too. Yeah. Lots yeah. of, sh- I love it. And like, there are st- big studio ones that, you know, I-, I always think of like the Maltese Falcon is like the major studio version of like this kind of filmmaking. And it's not to me like the purest, it's a great film, but it's not like the purest version of noir. Like this is it. It's like someone with like a scrappy budget, Mm -hmm. uh, just sort of running around with cameras, trying to like get a movie in, in a weekend. And like, there's this really almost legendary flow of creativity coming from like the German expressionist people coming in, making these poverty row movies. And then these like French film critics in the years afterwards who grew up on these American crime pictures, then making the French new wave, version of that with like breathless and uh 400 blows and stuff like that where they're running around the streets with the handheld cameras trying to make these like high style bad luck crime movies and then that basically guiding american art cinema for the next like half century so i don't know i I just find that like a very interesting thing that like these movies that were made just to fill out these like marquees to like make a quick buck more or less then like basically dictating the next like 60 years (laughs) of filmmaking i think that's wonderful What also is funny to me in that, like, greater continuum is when you think of noir and people who idolize noir, what I think of, again, is Maltese Falcon. (laughs) But I think of, like, these, like, tough guys who talk fast and are, like, really stoic and manly. They might talk about these, like, femme fatales dragging them down, but it's coming from this, like... You know, I I drink alcohol from when I wake up till I go to bed. I smoke tons of cigarettes (laughs) and I shoot my pistol. Like, yeah. And I I think that Breathless, again, like kind of takes maybe the least interesting aspects of that, like macho, that machismo, like at face value. But like watching this group of movies from the 40s, I don't know if it's just the ones we picked, but like all of them subvert and undercut that Mm a lot. Yeah. And this one, this guy thinks that he's that macho. Like, uh, I'm just making it the best I can given the circumstances. I'm going to tough it out. But he's a
3: total he's bum. He's a little worm. He's, he's so a funny. bum. <laughs> he's and Vera funny. is the one.
2: She's running the show. She's running the yeah. show. Yeah. Yes.
3: And he's like, you know, when they're like holed up in the hotel room, they're just getting drunk, playing cards, and, you know, having their verbal quips. <laughs> like, he's saying all the things that a noirish guy should say. Yeah. But he's totally emasculated. He has no power in the situation. She's calling all the shots, and it's just like he comes across so pathetic in those moments. Like, dude, yeah, you a- you ain't running this game. I want to
2: give this a rewatch so bad because, like, initially when I was the first time I ever saw it, and I'm like, oh god, this poor fucking dude. <laughs> life is shitting on him. I guess life shits on everybody, but like. As we've like talked about it, I'm like rewatching the the scenes mm-hmm. in my head, and I'm like, this is so fucking weird. Yeah, like this is probably gonna be a weird ass movie when I see it again, keeping all this crap in mind. So I didn't quite remember this movie, but I thought
1: there were two detours in particular that I thought were really interesting. So first of all, I forgot that. I know who's I knew he was traveling from New York to LA. I forgot that he ends up in LA. He's there with <laughs> Vera, but he's still just like trapped there with her like in that hotel room before they can get rid of the car that they have. And then she wants to pull this scheme with him where like he'll pretend to be Haskell and get the inheritance money from his dying father and The last time I watched it, and actually this time, I expected him to just keep on going down these, like, loops, these endless loops with her into, like, escalating crime. And then it ends up that he doesn't, like, he just, it just kind of ends again. Like, and it's almost like he's even more lost because he doesn't actually commit to either path. He could have actually like found some self actualization maybe if he had just straight up become a criminal or if he had like said forget about it i'm leaving you know i'm going to la i'm going to be with my love but he just he's like so passive except for when he when he kills people i mean he
3: says at the end <laughs> he's like i could call sue but i i can't do it right now like i and i don't know, i just got the 4K criterion of Lost Highway. Oh, yes. in the mail. That's what I was yesterday. thinking of
2: with this movie when you said Lynch. I'm like, it, there is like lost some highway-ish.
3: crossover, but I was just thinking of the title Lost Highway and like him starting the film like hitchhiking and ending the film hitchhiking. I was just thinking of that title like he's lost and just that idea of like trying to hitch a ride to the next thing and he just can't figure it out. He's just making bad decisions, and he's, like Hannah said, like stuck in this loop. It is like nihilistic and despair, and that's what I love about noir. Laura considered me the wisest, the wittiest, the most interesting man she'd ever met. I was in complete accord with her on that point. She thought me also the kindest, the gentlest, most sympathetic man in the world. Did you agree with her there too? McPherson, you won't understand this, but I tried to become the kindest, gentlest, the most sympathetic man in the world.
2: Have any luck?
3: Let me put it this way. I should be sincerely sorry to see my neighbor's children devoured by wolves.
2: My noir 1940s pick is from 1940, and it is The Letter, starring Miss Betty Davis. Mm. Um, This was directed by William Wyler. He directed, uh like, Ben-Hur is his big one, but The Children's Hour as well, which I believe we did a while back.
0: Yeah, we did Lesbian Boarding Schools. Lesbian
2: Boarding Schools. Ah. Yep. <laughs> We're back at it again. So this is based off of a true story and there was a film based off of a play in 1929 that's i don't know the exact year when like all of this code came into play but like in the 1929 version of this like the gentleman she was having the main character's having an affair with had a mistress um instead of a wife and at the end of the film she um the main character didn't die so when this film was made it's like you have to show like you know if you murder somebody you're gonna get punished yeah yeah
0: so i think in this case like the haze coast kind of helped the movie out because i think the ending is pretty satisfying Yeah, i'm not always down for like you know in the bad seed Rhoda Penmark has to get spanked at the end. Like, that's dumb. But, like, in this case, I think it's kind of like a detour yeah. thing. Like, it, her fate has to like continually decline for a third The to only work.
3: thing that bothers me is, like, the savage justice aspect. Yeah. Of
0: it. And the dragon lady villain. Yeah. I
2: hate. Okay. So, well, I anyway, hated... Well, anyway, we're getting ahead of <laughs> we'll ourselves. Get, we'll but. get into it. So, I'll talk what it's about. So, it takes place, this film takes place um, on a rubber plantation in Malay I think Malay yes so the opening of this film is probably one of the best openings that anything from the gold like the golden age of cinema has had where there's this beautiful shot of like a full moon and Betty Davis shoots somebody very calmly (laughs) like and very strategically and it's like you're kind of watching all this happen where like the moon will appear and there's like moonlight on everything and then um just the clouds kind of pass over it as everything's happening yeah i mean she mows him down
0: it's not a whodunit she done it
2: yeah she pops
3: (laughs) a few caps in his ass at the end we
2: know she's a killer but well after she shoots him a couple of the plantation workers wake up because they hear gunshots and they're like holy shit and she's like you know, go get my husband. Someone's dead. And her husband's working and he comes to her aid. And then she spins a story saying like, okay, like he came on to me. He tried to, you know, like sexually assault me and to save my dignity. Like I shot him. But she does it in such a way where, like, you're like, this woman is a psychopath because she's so calm as she says it. And she's, like, lying down on these, like, pillows mm-hmm. and just, you know, oh, no, I didn't know what to do. Um, And her husband wholeheartedly is like, I 100% believe you. Lawyer up. And she goes to this, like, prison for, like, five days or so while they're trying to like work out her case and everyone's on the assumption of like she's not gonna get charged for this this is fine this is just protocol and this letter the letter the letter surfaces there's a copy of this letter that supposedly she wrote asking for jeff hammond the gentleman that she shot for him to come over to see her and she at first like dismisses it and she's like no this isn't my letter like i didn't write this and her lawyer is chatting with someone the gentleman who like brought the letter forward and is like no like mr hammond's wife has the real letter and you can have it if you pay 10 grand so betty davis's husband has like $10,000 10,427 bucks in his checking account it's
3: all of his life savings yeah, yeah.
2: It's It's all of his money. So he schemes a way to get access to this guy's account, take his money to pay off the widow for a copy of the letter that's going to incriminate her. And the widow, which it's a a white woman playing an Asian character, and it's horrible, but she's so... (laughs) ridiculously campy in the way that she acts that it's so entertaining to me where she's very like serious like she doesn't really say much she just mm-hmm. kind of stares like with the most like, like she's throwing darts at you when she looks at you I, I think that's she's the, mad. that's the dragon lady like stereotype is like the ice
0: cold oh i thought she was just
2: pissed because that woman killed her husband and he was having an affair with her there's
0: a certain like racist stereotype that she's playing in the movie but to the movie's credit also like part of the downfall of betty davis part of what brings her down is that she's racist against this lady yeah
1: (laughs) she was sleeping with this guy and then he meets uh, his wife and he's like oh I love this woman I don't want to see you anymore and she's like I saw her with her gold bangles oh, with her fucking eyes right exactly yeah she's Cobra racist eyes. as fuck she's like a part of this colonialist they're all racist yeah they're, they own a
2: rubber plantation right, they're exactly they're raping the land of these yeah. people but so that is like
0: specifically part of her downfall she just yeah. could not handle Her lover taking on this Asian woman as a wife. Right,
2: exactly. So there's this massive party that gets thrown (laughs) for her, where it's like, okay, you know, she's not going to jail. She's been, you know, all this is blown over and like all of the like rich white folks that live in Malay on the island are there and they're having a ball and they're dancing and her husband Robert eventually like finds out about this letter and he starts to kind of drink at the bar of the party and all this kind of stuff and then he has this there's this really good great scene that I love where he's like you'll do anything for the person you love and like he's super in love with her and she could give two shits about him and then he asks like do you love me and she looks at him in the face and she's like yes and then like two seconds after (laughs) she throws herself away and she's like no i'm in love with that man that is dead
0: the moment is so great because it feels like the end (laughs) of the movie Because there's this big romantic swell of music Mm -hmm. where where she's like, oh, I can move on. You know, this is a thing of the past. I really do love you. And the music gets very loud. And then it cuts off abruptly. And then she turns away and is like, I can't do it.
2: (laughs) I still love the man I killed. Oh, So, so good. Betty Davis did not want that scene to go that way. Like she wanted, she's like, a woman can never look a man in the eye. That was about an
0: earlier scene.
2: Wasn't that that yeah, one?
0: Yeah, uh, oh, there's fuck. the the confession scene midway through where he actually reads the letter. The oh. original direction was for her to like confess to him, and instead she like sort of like, vacantly like mm. stares off of the ceiling and like confesses at nothing, and he she just has to listen it. to it. Hmm. Gotcha. Uh, that's a brilliant choice. Less. Much better. Yeah. yeah, much better. She was right.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and eventually she gets stabbed by Miss Hammond, the the widow and at the end and then her body is left in the moonlight as everybody is dancing and celebrating her freedom betty davis plays this character so much in like almost every movie like she's i can't think of a movie off the top of my head where she's not this like villain like she's always a villain but she plays it so well and in this one i loved how she was so vacant of like real human emotion for what she did and like does like she doesn't have like any guilt for it like at least with detour even though he probably was crazy he's like sweating and he's like oh god yeah yeah this is why i did this like she just doesn't care to even like come up with the reasoning behind it i mean if she lies but to appease other people not to herself
3: i I was thinking about vera during this movie just because of the eyes yeah, totally, dude. The like uh, the crazy eyes yeah. that Betty Davis has—something about those big, wide, like bulbous. bulbous eyes. Like when they're delivering delicious <laughs> dialogue, just like does it for me.
0: I will say she does have to play cool to like seem innocent, mm-hmm. um, but. She does a lot of nervous knitting. Yes,
3: though. exactly. That, <laughs> her lace work. Her,
1: yeah, that was where all of her anxiety was going. You're That's, right. Yeah, she's like very. It was like a duck. Like a duck is very calm, and then they're just like thrashing. Yeah, her like, hands are going crazy. So she much, puts on those like big yeah. coke bottle
2: glasses. Yeah, oh, just hot. furiously
1: <laughs> so high. Yeah, I her her like lace work was one of my favorite parts of this film because I felt like the her lawyer makes a comment about it like oh you're you know you do a lot of lace it takes a particular kind of person to you know work on that like someone who's trying not to t- trying to distract themselves so i feel like that does kind of key into how her life has been on this plantation like she's kind of lonely and she's just has all of this other stuff going on and all of these like passions and feelings that she wants to like that basically have no outlet except for this guy mm-hmm. and so she does this like lace work it's just like fraught with anxiety but it's really beautiful yeah her work is great yeah um, <laughs> i do love
2: that whole veil wrap mm-hmm. that she has when she goes to visit the widow's home to to get the letter
0: there's a lot of like interesting power dynamics in that scene too yeah. like The widow basically makes her get on her knees Mm -hmm. below her. Yeah,
2: she
1: does. I love too when she's like pulling, there's this really beautifully carved ornate knife, but but it just has this like little statue and then she pulls it out and it's this like bright Mm -hmm. flashing and that's the knife that kills her eventually. But it's exactly like Betty Davis because she's wearing that beautiful lace shawl, but she's this like silent, dangerous thing. That's very cool.
3: I loved her dynamic with her defense attorney as well i thought his character was interesting where he's like you think of a defense attorney like i have to defend my client at all costs and he's like i'm not gonna go that far like you're asking me to do some pretty pretty shady shit and like the way that their characters play off of each other he's like ah i i think you're guilty you're probably guilty i'll do what i can (laughs) To get you off, but I ain't gonna do that. And then he does it. Yeah. <laughs> and then he does it. He's like, "All right, I'll do it." And he feels really bad about it. I couldn't get a handle on this. Do you think he might have been like
2: falling in love with her a little bit? I think so. Even yeah. though he was like kind of disgusted by her, who's vibing with? Well, it was probably hot. Where it's like, "Ooh, she might <laughs> have killed somebody."
3: One thing. One thing I've noticed with like most noirs, all relationships might be romantic at any given yeah. time. Like.
2: And all detectives want to bang the woman that they're defending. Yeah,
3: even some of the other (laughs) movies we're going to talk about, it's like, is there a sexual element, a romantic thing? I definitely kind of got that vibe, too. I'm not sure where to place it.
1: He has a lot of lines, too, that could be interpreted either way, where he says, like, never mind how I feel about you, or like, how I (laughs) feel about you isn't important. Exactly. So it could be like, it doesn't matter that I think you're a horrible woman, or it doesn't, like, I am falling for you, or both.
0: Yeah, earlier I was talking about um, the machismo of the genre. Yeah. And, like, that's mostly what I was thinking about watching all of these, and, like, how it's undercut. Uh, this one reminds me that, like, most of the noir movies I watch are more in this style, which is basically, like, they're melodramas with, like, guns and knives in them. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes. this is basically, like, a, a, a woman's picture, mm-hmm. but it just happens to start with a murder, and I think Hannah floated talking about Mildred Pierce mm-hmm. for this episode. And we were like, is it a noir? Like, right. it is. But, yeah. like, it's like a melodrama with murder. Right. I'm thinking, like, we did another Betty Davis movie that's in the exact same vein, uh, Dead Ringers. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. We did yeah. Leave Her to Heaven, which is the same kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like, mm-hmm. I watch yeah. a lot of these, like, they're crime pictures. They have the, like, the Venetian blind slats lining right. on everything. <gasps> But the will they won't they romance yeah. with the lawyer even like there are like these like melodramas
3: that just happen mm-hmm. to have murder in them. The, this one felt the least noir. Yeah. I mean, it had noirish elements, but like I want to say like
0: I looked up the first thing on the like Wikipedia page of like American noirs, like this is like one of the first titles listed. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I think it's just like a loose term. Obviously, it's it's more about visual aesthetics than it is about anything. But they also have to be crime pictures, yeah. And the term was not applied to the genre till like after the fact, and I think basically crime melodramas got labeled as noir. And I think people have been debating what does and doesn't count under right. that well, umbrella ever since. because when you since. say like
3: Maltese Falcon, yeah, obviously unmistakable, unmistakably yeah. noir in the most like traditional sense. And I know we're going to talk about like Laura, very traditional. Mm-hmm noir yeah. this one is a little more i think we were talking it. about it's like
0: being in the city like if uh this was set in an urban space instead of the jungle then it would be more recognizable i think even detour taking place outside in the desert is like unusual i can only think of that one in uh, ida lapino's the hitchhiker being like out in the sunshine
2: in like big these mm-hmm. big open spaces or like what if everything in the movie was the same but there was a voiceover of her Talking about the shit she was doing to the screen,
1: would that make it more noir? Yeah, like a vo-
2: like a narration yeah. track, yeah. yeah,
1: or the lawyer. Like I saw that look my eye, and I questioned everything. <laughs>
0: I don't even <laughs> want to question whether this is a noir yeah, though. Like, I when think I, it is a noir. What I want to say is like the way we conceptualize it is a few like Humphrey Bogart style movies, mm-hmm. and like really a lot of the genre, especially the studio stuff was these women's pictures. Like I-, I watched I think four Joan Crawford movies on mm-hmm. this like DVD set. There's like Mildred Pierce and The Damn Don't Cry and Possessed. They were all noir films, yeah. but they were all exactly like this. And like I think a lot a lot of the genre is less macho than we remember the few like more iconic, um, mm. stereotypical ones being. Every single movie we picked, I think, undercuts the like machismo.
3: Yeah. I mean, I've watched a lot where it's like You're very generic, like, yeah, literally a gangster with damsel in distress, or whatever. And those are like the least interesting. The ones we talk about in this podcast are like the more interesting ones that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Like, these were all very good, yeah, picks.
1: And I do like it when they involve women and gender dynamics in an interesting way, like, watching the letter made me think of like when i would watch snapped when i was a kid of like this <laughs> oh, yeah. person who's like like fundamentally Sweet. unhappy and mm-hmm. has reasons for what she's done that are like inexcusable but there is something there's some foundation there and like part of it is just she's racist and <laughs> she's kind of powerless and the only way to get what she wants is to tell this story that shows her in a powerless light. Like, she, yeah. like it is a cause of her unhappiness and also her only, like, tool for evading uh, consequences.
0: That's why I kind of like that she gets murdered at the end. Yeah. Because, like, it's the same trajectory as Detour. Like, she makes her own shit luck. She gets herself in this yeah. scenario. And then she, like... Pays the price. I don't know. There's something like inevitable, nihilist about the track that right. she puts herself on.
1: I really liked the ending, and I, th- you know, you brought up like the idea of savage justice, and I think that you can definitely make a case for that. But I think it is kind of satisfying that, like, okay, so she just murders this man. She's gonna get away with it. But right. the woman that was in love with him and like. For all we know, they had a loving relationship. Like, her community says, fuck that. We're going to scalp these people for all of their money. And then, like, instead of her going to prison and, like, rotting for however many years or, like, getting out early, whatever, we're going to punish her. So I think you you can interpret it in, like, a very racist way. And I think you can also interpret it in, like, like there are all these illusions throughout the movie of like whether the society they've created as a colonialist community is civilized or not. And I think there's an argument to be made that she did receive like true justice.
3: I did find it interesting too like we're definitely living in an era of like believe women, like trust women when right. they tell. <laughs> and like watching a movie from back then where it was like don't believe women. They're fucking crazy, and they'll make some shit up. And yeah. like Giving women the like power to be a villain. She does specifically
0: lie about a rape too, which
3: is yeah. Like, well, yeah. no, I, I know. But like, you cannot get away with that. No. How now. they
2: believed her <laughs> so willingly, where it's yeah. like, yeah, you know, were women like automatically believed that quickly back then because she like says it, and everyone's like, oh, holy shit. Well. That's one of those things, like,
3: them. watching some of these noirs, like, you get why it's problematic, but part of it feels, like, kind of fresh in a way. Or yeah. like transgressive. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. damn, you can't do that anymore. Just call women oh. insane and they make shit up and lie about stuff, you know.
0: And maybe that's a shame in some ways because women don't get to misbehave on screen
2: as right. often as I like if- an insane woman on screen. Yeah, yeah. Like, misbehave. Make up like- all kinds of shit, please, Betty Davis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and again, and I did feel like
1: very icky during that scene. I was like, okay, Betty, you're clearly lying, <laughs> right. you know, and this is like anti-Me Too, but I think part of that was, like, I, I forgave the film for part of that because I actually could see her character and her Specific unhappiness and powerlessness, and like why she would have felt like this is my only way out. Basically, it is problematic, but I think it's still like somewhat nuanced and interesting.
2: Yeah,
0: so we do go back to New York City for the next movie, Laura from 1944. Stars two of the main cast members from Lever to Heaven, uh, Gene Tierney and Vincent Price who looks fucking enormous in these suits. I don't know what's going on. He looks like he's way. tall, like, right? Yeah. He's a
1: big boy. His
0: arms is like a whole person. He he's just looks like,
3: boy. he looks like lavender. Like <laughs> something about his, I don't know, his hair. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, just yeah. very silky uh, in this movie. He's a very sensual his man.
2: His skin yeah. is like so simple. There's a lot of yeah.
3: weird sensual stuff going on here. So
0: this movie has more of like the traditional detective in the city Trying to solve a murder kind of thing going on. But I think it undercuts that in a uh, hilarious way. There are these three men pining after this woman who was murdered. The titular Laura, who uh, pulls a little bit of a gone girl and like resurfaces halfway into the movie and kind of like changes the whole dynamic. Mm. But she was killed brutally before the movie even starts. She's like shot with a shotgun in the
3: face. To the face. Yeah.
0: In her own home. And the detective has these two suspects one is Vincent Price. And one is more of the narrator character who is the most selfish piece of shit, big time New York City asshole. He's a diva. That's where the subversion comes in. He's gay. Okay. And I think <laughs> what's so funny is like thinking of this as like a macho genre and this being like one of the most foremost examples of it. And the two romantic rivals in this movie are like the priciest
3: yes. men
0: in New York City. <laughs> like they are two fet. Self-absorbed, yes. pampered playboys who yeah. just had these little whiny catfights back and forth <laughs> over their favorite Meanwhile, dress-up doll, who was The is detective
3: Laura. is getting wasted drinking, like, whole bottles of whiskey yeah. in one sitting. That aspect of it is so <laughs> funny Doesn't to he, me. Like,
2: one of the things he throws, it was like watching RuPaul's Drag Race, where it's like, <laughs> what are your family, a bunch of sharecroppers? Or, like...
0: <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love it when she, uh, in a flashback, Laura interrupts him while he's eating, and he's like, "You are interrupting something far more important than your career, my lunch." Yes, <laughs> I break <laughs> right like a uh,
1: goose quill dipped <laughs> in venom.
0: <laughs> uh, the detective walks in, and he goes, uh, "Haven't you heard of science's latest triumph? The doorbell. <laughs> it's so catty and prissy, and just like, yeah, I, I think they are coded as being." At least, if not gay, then like soft city boys.
3: Yeah. You know? But what wasn't, he was like kind of typecast as a gay character throughout his career after that. The one that played the columnist. Yeah, the columnist, yeah. Yeah. I don't know his. Clifton uh, Webb? Yeah, I don't know the Clifton career Webb, of Clifton yeah. Webb. Uh, <laughs> we we'll better <laughs> we'll find to out. That. No, but af- <laughs> after that, I think he was like typecast in that sort of role.
0: I believe that. And I, I love how like. Their fighting over Laura has nothing to do with her, really. Like they just think she's pretty and nice. And then Laura comes in halfway through and falls in love with the detective Mm -hmm. who's been sort of becoming obsessed with her vicariously through these playboys. Like in
2: love with a dead woman.
0: He sits under her portrait, kind of like in Vertigo, and just like makes up some version of her based
3: on what he's heard and conjecture in these letters. Mm -hmm. It did remind me of like Twin Peaks, too. Like yeah, totally. All these. Men talking about this woman who's dead and they all are fawning over her. Whose name is
1: Laura. (laughs) Whose name is
3: Laura, yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And then um, their romance sort of becomes genuine. He still thinks that she might be the killer because obviously someone shot someone in the face and it happened in her house. (laughs) There is a body.
3: The movie is effective in that I did not know who the killer was until the very end.
0: And I don't want to give that away in case other people haven't seen it because this was a Mm -hmm. new watch for me. I don't know it does
3: keep you guessing. It's It's a shocker. Very effective. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Uh, it was funny watching it a second time. How the killer keeps giving themselves away because they keep bringing up the evidence and like trying to haul it out of the apartment but they kind of make it seem like it's right. not that big of a deal.
1: <laughs> oh, my belongings. Yeah. I'm going to
0: come collect my things. And like one of those things is uh, the evidence. Uh, <laughs> but it's very funny how they like kind of underplay it under their yeah. breath while asking for the stuff back.
3: I was like paying attention and I still at the end was like, I I'm kind of sure who it is, but I don't actually know. Yeah. And that, that was pretty exhilarating. So, yeah, this one felt more typical to
0: how I think of noir when I just like think of like the sort of cliche stereotypes of it. Um, But I I really enjoyed just how like gay it was. Yeah. (laughs) I thought it was very fun.
3: No, I agree. Like what I was saying before, it was the most like kind of standard plot wise noir. It's like a detective trying to solve a murder and he falls in love with the woman. But the undercurrents that existed were like really interesting and, uh, Again, kind of subversive. Yeah. I, I like this one a lot. I thought the dialogue was like really witty mm-hmm. and snappy in this one. And I thought the plot was good and like I said, like I kept guessing until the very end.
1: I really like this one, but I think it was probably my least favorite out of the four, just because I I did feel the conventionality, especially like towards the end. I guess I was waiting for like one more twist of the knife that didn't really come. The thing I really appreciated about it was like the projection of Laura that all of these men have and like the different ways that they use her for their own like gratification or like fantasy and the fact that she is like a pretty strong person, you know, like like she has real character and drive and she's not just like this weak she's not exactly a femme fatale and she's not this like wilting daisy either
3: she i don't know i was trying to think of the word to describe her because yeah she's not a femme fatale she's a career woman yeah like she's yeah. really confident I, she's an ad I think, woman she's I think self-sufficient she, yeah I, I think she's kind of like a vixen sort of character. Mm. like she is strong will like she knows what she wants but it's not like nefarious she's just like a strong person i
0: think she's just kind of like a cipher like she's just a woman who is like on her own independent and all these men keep projecting things onto her yeah and the ultimate like reveal of who the killer is ends up kind of being an indictment of like someone obsessing and like trying to mold her into something yeah Mm -hmm. when like it's not coming from her it's like it's their own obsessiveness that like is the downfall of the person who does get killed
1: and even this like feigned respect or like this purported respect and love for somebody that is like ultimately shallow because it's more about fulfilling your own like emotional needs
3: they're not actually in love with her yeah they're in love with
0: like some idea with her that they made up
1: right the painting
3: right (laughs) and again laura palmer that idea is pretty ageless and like i don't know that's why i thought vincent price was very interesting in here because he's playing like a version of this like waspy character that I've never really seen him play.
0: He's basically a male prostitute in this.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Is that? Yeah. He's like kind of a like dim-witted, mm-hmm. but he's hot and he dresses well and he's, he's well-mannered. Yeah.
2: I thought oh my it was God. nice how he was like flirting with the lady yeah. in the kitchen. Are you going to marry me yet?
3: There was a yeah. great scene. <laughs> yeah.
2: He has this like
1: relationship going on with this older woman, and there's this great scene where she's in the powder room with Laura, and- She's telling Laura, like, why this guy's a better match for her than for Laura. And she's like, he's not good, but he's what I want. You Ooh, know, like, and that's, like, and scene, that's yeah. all about like, she's talking about who this guy is, who she is, how they understand each other. And it, it's like they've bought into each other's like projections, basically, like, we know exactly what we want from each other. It's and transactional. It, yeah. It's such a frank conversation. and That was maybe one of my favorite scenes. And I
3: love too, like, during that scene, I was like, could she be the killer? And then <laughs> she has a line at the end where she was like, yeah, I thought about it, but I'm no. not the killer. I also <laughs> like she's like,
0: uh, you know, lay off my guy. I don't think he did it, but he's totally capable of doing yeah, it. Right.
1: He could, he could,
0: he do, could do, it. do that.
3: <laughs> yeah. There's That's all wild. these little drops throughout the room, like. I thought it could be them, but it's not them, but maybe it is them. And I don't know. It kept me guessing. I understand what you're saying about
0: this being the most conventional, but I think it might've been detour. I had seen before, but of the, yeah. of the three I had not seen, it was like my favorite. Yeah. But I, I liked it, it a lot. I think too. it was just the humor between yeah. the two playboys, like was so refreshing and not what I expected out of this genre that like, I was kind of won over by that yeah. more than anything.
1: And the columnist really is so funny. Just yeah. like totally delicious. <laughs>
0: It opens with him in the bath Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the very first things that happens is he like tries to pull this power move where he like gets out of the bathtub in front of the detective to like towel off like I'm naked in my house you you have to deal with that and the detective like glances down at his dick and like smiles to himself (laughs) like okay I'm not impressed (laughs) (laughs) and that's like what it starts with uh, yeah and the movie kind of keeps up that like caddy back and forth Mm -hmm. um, the whole time well we do have one more
1: we do um, so my pick was *The Lady from Shanghai*, which was directed in 1947 by Orson Welles. It stars Orson Welles as Michael, with possibly the worst, oh, <laughs>
0: little Michael.
1: It oh, little Michael, what a boob I am! <laughs> just absolutely, it was so funny. Are you
0: saying that Orson Welles is not Irish? I'm just
1: this. <laughs> for <the> first time. <laughs> I had to check his Wikipedia, but oh no, I can God. confirm he's can not I Irish. Do it. Um, Rita Hayworth as Elsa Bannister. Everett Sloan as Arthur Bannister, her husband. And then Glenn Anders as George Grisby, who's this like very sweaty law partner, I think, with with Arthur. Um, so Michael uh, is a sailor. He meets Elsa in the park, and he kind of saves her from these ruffians. He's looking for a job, and she offers him a job on her husband's boat so her husband finds him in the dock the next day and hires him to go on their boat and they go on this like long trip together and they're just like really strange relationships with everybody like arthur seems to be like very domineering a very controlling his law partner is Going on this trip with him, he's like always sweating and like constantly just looks deranged.
0: In these really nasty close-ups, yeah, you can see the sweat
3: coming oh. out of the pore. Actively. Oh my gosh, smell that bastard! Distorted. Yeah. he looks disgusting.
1: There's this great shot where you see like the end of a spyglass, and you see Elsa on a cliff jumping off of the cliff, and then the spyglass moves and it's just a close up of Mr. Grisby's face Ugh. just yeah it's disgusting
0: even his voice is disgusting yeah. too it's like this little whiny oh. squeal yeah yeah
1: <laughs> so Mr. Grisby eventually tries to convince Michael to kill him by signing a confession letter basically saying that he killed Mr. Grisby and they're going to pull trying to pull off this insurance scheme so, Mr. Grisby is going to go missing, and because there's no body, um, Michael can't be arrested and, uh, like, put in prison for the crime. So, it's this, like, r- super convoluted plan, and he's going to, like, give him <laughs> like, $5,000. Sh- <laughs> yeah. What a scheme. Right. And Michael's like, oh, I don't know, and then eventually he agrees to it, and of course- The guy actually ends up dead, and then Michael goes to court. He's being defended by the law partner who, like... (laughs) Didn't make
3: any fucking sense. (laughs) Like cross-examines himself on the stand. (laughs) The jurors are like sneezing. Yeah, it's so strange.
1: So that uh, this plot is so convoluted. Like I don't even know if I need to communicate exactly what's going on. But it's the the essence is that Elsa and um, George, Mister Grisby, and Arthur are caught in this like. Kind of like Michael compares them to these sharks that he saw off of some coast while he was sailing, just like that they bite each other and there's blood in the water, and they're like attacking each other, and they have this lust for blood until they're eventually all dead. and that's kind of like it's it's like this whirlpool of these three people that uh Michael is caught within, and it culminates in this like amazing like fun house shootout mirror scene. There are these like double exposures and there's all of this tension. Everybody's kind of like looking at each other and circling around each other and, the, and then the shots go
2: and they're just mirrors, mirrors, mirrors. And Michael's and
0: tripping on sleeping pills so things get really weird
2: looking right. in there too. I rewinded that mirror scene like three times. Yeah, it was...
1: It's and so cool. It was in the original cut, it was like 20 minutes
3: um, Ooh, that was, would have been yeah, awesome it was cut down
1: to three um <laughs> so i man i like really did not know how i felt about like this film is such a mess but the more i thought about it the more i liked it i don't know i just like reread my notes and there were all of these like really strange kind of unintentionally or intentionally funny moments like so michael falls in love with elsa like they start a relationship and that's part of the reason that he takes this job on he's like oh we're gonna you know i'm gonna get five
2: thousand dollars and we're gonna go away and we're you know we're gonna be off together that and the boat ride had to be insane i'm like how are they getting to the panama canal because they were on like the east coast right yeah i think yeah i think they started long in central ride. that's a long ass boat ride that was tripping me up like for right. half this.
0: I mean, it would seem short because they were like blackout drunk right, the entire that's true. <laughs> trip. That's
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> It's just this ha- hazy, hot, drunk, miserable movie. And Michael <laughs> is just like, <laughs> he just refers to himself as a boob multiple times. He's like, well, I guess I'm just an idiot. And I, you know. It's
0: kind of like the detour guy. He's right. just like kind of a sad sack. <laughs> yeah, like, like a
1: hapless dude.
0: Inertia is kind of pulling me yeah. into
3: this. Dude. That accent, though, like <laughs> okay. it's So, can we talk about the, accent's the accent? Bad.
2: Was it Scottish or Irish? Just, Irish. I, it, it was, supposed
3: it, it to was be Irish. neither,
0: but it was Irish. Right.
2: <laughs> right. It was attempting to be. There Irish. were times where I'm like,
3: "Is he Scottish?" In like short sentences, he sounds like Orson Wells. But in longer, sentences, he's trying to lay it on thick with the Irish thing, and it's like it's bad. It's okay. a bad. That was accent. a poor choice. No it's a, doubt. it's a poor choice. We just have to address it because. I feel like a lot of what's talked about with this movie is like, oh my god, Orson Welles' accent is horrible, and it it is. I find it kind of entertaining. It's not.
0: It's not accurate to an Irish accent,
3: but it comes and goes. But maybe like uh, <laughs> that's just how that one guy sounds. <laughs> <laughs> no one else in the what? world sounds like that. It maybe that's just his voice. That's I don't his? think that's how accents work. They don't come and go as. He's from a weird part of Ireland.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's just been away for a while and he's starting to lose it. Sure, know? sure. <laughs> we Kinda did this like to him. Austin he Butler can't stop talking like Elvis now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I, I love that. I did notice that. He just becomes soul. (laughs) (laughs) okay that's the one thing everyone always brings up with this or at least when i was like poking around that came up a lot
3: i know so we just got to put that to the side that i get
0: the complaint what i don't get is like people talking about it being messy and confusing where i'm like i don't care yeah it's so fucking gorgeous like we just talked about the magnificent ambersons a few episodes ago and like how it was cut down by the studio and there are people who still love What's Left and think it's like one of the greatest movies of all time, even in its compromised vision. And I yeah. don't get that. Like, mm-hmm. to me, it's like such a stately movie that has such a clear intended payoff that like What's Left does not have. This one, it's a shame that the studio cut an hour out of the movie, especially that Funhouse st- thing. I would love for that to go on forever.
2: That should have been the whole movie.
0: But like What's Left, I still think is fucking great. Yeah. Uh, even if it is a little messy and confusing, it's like the reason I watch genre movies and the, th- the reason I think they're interesting is like people only make them because it's easy to get them green lit. The person spending the money knows that there's a built-in audience. It's like, Oh, I know how to market that kind of picture. I can get people to co- come mm-hmm. watch that. So by selling that idea, then you have room as a visual artist to do whatever you want in that like playground. And Orson Welles fucking goes for it hard yeah. in this.
3: And I do feel like it, comes off to me as almost a parody or a satire of noir. That's interesting.
1: Oh. It
3: Like some of this stuff is so over the top. Like the courtroom scene is a perfect example. Like all these noirs end in a courtroom battle. And I hate that trope in noir. We're like, it ends in the trial. And this trial is absurd. I mean, it's cartoonish. And then it goes outside of that to this like funhouse mirror Thing and to me, I don't know if he was intentionally doing this, but he's playing around with the genre. I guess that's of noir, kind of where I was. And I going. think that, and I think that's like really interesting. But
0: I don't think he's like making fun of the genre or like pointing out tropes. What I think he's doing is just like following the beats of a standard plot and just playing around.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like he's having fun he's with it loose. in his own yeah. like auteur
0: way. The montage of them traveling by boat is fucking unhinged. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's just him playing with the camera the way that like um Steven Soderbergh making that Kimmy movie last year. That's yeah. a very recognizable bones genre plot and it looks insane cuz Soderbergh likes to play with camera equipment. Mm-hmm. And like that's the vibe I get from this. It's like okay, I have to film this scene insert here because that's what happens in a noir film what can i do now that like i've got the money for that how can i actually like do something fun and creative Mm -hmm. and like enjoy my job i don't think it has like an intentionality where he's like picking apart genre tropes i think he's just following the rules as much as he has to to get away with what he wants to do
3: yeah i don't think it was intentional but by like kind of breaking the rules he's outside of the mold of the genre yeah
1: and I think it was, like, intentionally humorous. I mean, that courtroom scene, it's, I mean, it's... That
3: had to be. Right, oh, it doesn't take show. itself... Yeah. St-
1: oh, my God. And that, there's this part that made me howl, at the end of the trial, like, another... Oh, he's, like, escaping the courtroom with this other jury, and they're talking about the case, and this woman is like, that woman's too nice-looking to have taken all that jewelry. <laughs> yeah. Just, like, I don't like, or, like... There were so many shots of people smoking in front of signs that said no smoking. Was this a comedy? Right. It and it, it felt very it felt like a comedy, but it also had especially the boat ride like these hazy hot mediations yeah. on like violence. Like there's this one line he he's like it's a bright guilty world. Like talking about how violence and the evil of man is present Mm -hmm. throughout the day like stands
3: in the daylight i just love that kind of juicy dialogue with a close-up of somebody sweating (laughs) and an irish accent all day yeah and an irish accent i guess the accent I could do without.
0: I think Michael talks like that. I think that's just Michael's thing. Hey, not, just not the Michael. people of Ireland. Just Michael. <laughs> just <laughs> just
3: Michael. Well, just Michael.
2: with Lady oh, cool. from Shanghai and with Laura. Like I was, I think I always had the assumptions is the first time I watched both of those movies that I was, you know, like noirs are always like very serious, and those were both like so light. Like they were both obviously like noir films. And there was like, you know, there's mystery in both of them, but I didn't expect like to laugh as much as I did or that like type of humor to like exist mm-hmm. in these
3: movies. That's what I kind of love about noirs. Yeah. Especially from this time period. It's like, I'm always amazed of movies that came out 80 years ago, almost 100 oh, years yeah. ago. And like, they're still clever and funny and have things to say about gender dynamics or about genre tropes and I don't this is just like a great genre for like a lot of different things
0: I think too we're talking about how like light and playful this one is but I think it also has the most like vicious cruelty Mm -hmm. and like you know you you like walk into like someone's like bitter relationship with someone else sometimes you're like oh there is something going on here I do not need to be involved with yeah like these people have been alone in their little hate cycle Mm -hmm. for so long I'm not touching that But he walks in and falls in love with a person in that hate cycle, right? And then just lays witness to these people like getting blackout drunk and like sniping at each other all night. And there's just something about that sequence that is like actually dark and fucked up, yeah, in a way that nothing else of among these movies is except Vera.
1: Yeah, I think those like wide angle close ups he has Mm. of. Mr. Grisby and Arthur, especially on that cruise, like just the way that distorts your face is so unsettling. It like makes all of your features look huge and looming and kind of like grotesquely bulbous. And I think that was super effective in establishing this like dread of the people around you who are just sweating and like screeching.
0: Even the courtroom scene. As funny as it is, one of the, like, last beats of it is the lawyer whispering mm-hmm. him to him, like, yeah. I'm going to make sure you rot in jail yeah. so I can come visit you and watch you squirm. <laughs> and, like, that seems pretty creepy and quiet yeah. and, like, unnerving. But, you know, it is surrounded by so much playful theatrics that, like, I don't know. We saw what Orson Welles would have done if he had total freedom. Right. Which was Citizen Kane. And it's, like legitimately one of the best movies ever made and is like so fun and so dark and you know just one of the greats it seems like almost everything else he made was compromised one way or another yeah uh and i think this one came out of that filter a lot more intact than magnificent ambersons i would gladly watch this one again yeah a lot sooner
1: i don't know i hate to say it but this might have this was either my favorite or tied for my favorite i just like i love the deep kind of gritty like human horror and also just I wrote down so many lines that just made me howl with laughter like it was the perfect combination of those two things for me which is I mean that's just a me personally thing uh-huh. not necessarily like I don't think this is the best noir but I thought it was like very interesting and exploratory in the genre
3: I feel like this was probably the best directed. You know, you're talking about like directors versus actors and screenwriters. Like the Orson Welles is obviously like one of the best directors of all time, and like he puts his stamp on this film. And like I don't know, I feel like the writing in Laura was really clever, and I feel like the acting with Betty Davis was really great. So I don't, like each one of these noirs, like. Kind of hit it from a different angle as far as, like, what it takes to make a movie.
0: Yeah, like, the Otto Predinger stuff in Laura is not as flashy as um, the Soderberghian dicking around with the camera and, like, trying to find the most exciting angles on these ugly faces as mm-hmm. yeah. else can. You know, it's a more exciting and noticeable version of directing, I think. But I don't want to, like, say Laura's, like not well directed or whatever like i think that
3: yeah, that's a th- stylish movie too i think too. laura yeah. was my favorite i think one. that might be too and i i think detour was still my favorite because <laughs> yeah. it's so grimy and dis- yeah i don't know i i love this crop of movies how everyone can kind of find their own lane
1: i think detour probably was my very favorite i just think it's it's so tight so interesting there are four characters it's just so taut and interesting
2: yeah like detour it was the shortest we had the least amount of characters but it still felt like there was more action in that movie than all the other ones put together
0: mm-hmm. i think detour is like what i'm looking for in noir like yeah. it like paid off like when i'm like i'm gonna sit down and watch a noir from the 40s like i want detour that right one. also should say that like even if we're like gonna compare and like pick a favorite it was just a good crop of, yeah, like, movies. movies. Like these are good. I'm, I'm <laughs> all good. I'm
3: happy with yeah. everything yeah. that y'all picked.
1: Nice. I hate to, like, talk about things in terms of the number of stars I give it on Letterboxd, but these were, like, four-star to yeah. five-star movies. Oh my they God. were all so great. Yeah. yeah.
0: I don't know that we'll repeat that next episode, uh, because <laughs> I picked Brandon Cronenberg's first film, Antiviral, just because I've never seen it, mm-hmm. and I'm curious about it. Hmm.
1: I heard it's good. I've I haven't heard, seen either. I've
0: heard mixed things, but I also hear that from people who don't think that Infinity Pool or Possessor are very good either. Oh, so I okay. don't know. Well. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious about it, but I'm sure it's more flawed. I'll probably like it. We all liked Infinity Pool a lot,
3: right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. I
1: definitely, I think I definitely preferred Possessor, but I did like
0: Infinity Pool.
3: I agree with you. I, th- I thought Possessor was more just, interesting. He's like a good filmmaker, and I yeah. want to yeah. see everything that he puts yeah. out. He has weird ideas. Mm-hmm. Yep. I need to
0: get off the internet and just talk to y'all about movies. <laughs> I feel like I lose faith when I leave this circle and like I look at other people's opinions and stuff. And I'm like wow i guess i just have shit taste
3: (laughs) am i
2: fundamentally bad
3: infinity pool was very good we all have equally bad taste
2: but i think that it influences a lot of people's opinions or like yeah i guarantee you so many people that like review things they're like they might be like man infinity pool five stars it's rocks and then looked at a bunch of like two star reviews like it wasn't that good i guess you like
0: second guess yourself
2: yeah i'm totally
1: guilty of that i'm like oh maybe i'm wrong
2: i don't know Am I the idiot? Here?
0: What I'm looking forward to is the NC 17 cut. Uh, yes, that's sick. We were not privy to when people saw it Sundance. I feel like the people who are the least likely to enjoy the extra goopiness were the ones who got to see right. it. And I think that's an injustice. Oh, yeah.
1: Give me all that goop.
0: <laughs> the goop is for
3: us, <laughs> not for you. Goop squad. <laughs> goop squad. When your eyes are blue, your kisses too. I never knew. I can't believe that you're in love with me
2: You're telling everyone you know
1: That I'm on your mind each place you go They can't believe
2: that you're in love with me I have always placed you far above me
0: I just can't imagine that you love
1: me and after all is said and done to
2: think that i'm the lucky one i can't believe that you're in love with me